I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm Amy Taylor-Kabaz. I would like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on which this podcast is recorded as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And as this podcast is dedicated to the wisdom and knowledge of motherhood, I would like to acknowledge the mothers of this land, the elders, their wisdom, their knowing and my own elders and teachers. Welcome back, everybody. I wonder if either of these things have happened to you. Have you ever dismissed a moment of forgetfulness as mummy brain, apologizing for not being able to think of a word or remember what you were wanting to say? And have you ever assumed that something was meant to switch on in you, a mother instinct, an intuition, an immediate understanding of knowing what your baby needs and when, and thinking if you couldn't do that, if you couldn't understand in that moment what your child needed, then something wasn't right. Both of these times, both of these stories come from this belief of what happens to us when we become a mother. In our brain, we assume that we lose something And in our culture, we are told that we should know how to be a mother because we are female. These two stories, these two myths really, are directly addressed in the amazing book by Chelsea Connaboy called Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Helping Us to Rewrite the Story of Parenthood. In her book, it's so exciting she dives deep into the real understanding of neuroscience and what happens to our brain, how it's rewired through parenting, but in a different way than we're told, not as this immediate switch on now I'm a parent, I should know what to do, but instead a much more nuanced, interesting and exciting way that our brain slowly adapts to the stresses and realities of parenthood and what that does for us long term. This was such an exciting conversation. I would love to hear from you afterwards what really resonated for you and how this changed the way you saw yourself, your brain, your experience of becoming a parent. And just a little note, it's also incredibly exciting that she draws attention to how the non-birthing parent, the father, the adoptive parent's brains also change in a similar way. Here's my interview with Chelsea Connaboy.
Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited about this conversation. I think I could geek out on the things we're going to talk about for hours and hours. So I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. So I have been talking about researching and now teaching about how motherhood changes us for 15 years. And one of the things that um, I remember first hearing about and really began to shift this understanding of what had happened to me and therefore everybody else was this understanding of what happens to our brain when we mm-hmm. become pregnant and give birth. And um, so then to begin to read through your book and everything you've now understood about it was just so exciting that this is now out there. So can we start with how you first came to researching this yourself and then what does happen to our brain? Yes, I mean, I'd be so interested to compare notes on our on our stories because it, um, it, what you just said resonated with me and that I was struggling as a new mother. My, my first child was born in 2015 and you know planned pregnancy great partner I was like more financially secure than at any other point in my life I was ready you know to to be a mom and still I was blindsided by it I really felt like such a change in myself and in my my like internal sense of myself and and literally just in how I function day to day. And I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't have the language to help me understand what I was going through. And um, I really found it. I, you know, I, I, I remember very clearly sitting on the floor with my baby, surrounded by all of my hand-me-down baby books, kind of looking for the language that could describe particularly the worry and the hypervigilance that I felt as a new mother. And I just, I, I ultimately ended up finding it in the science of, of, of how the brain changes. Specifically, I started reading the, the science on maternal anxiety. And that led me to this idea that every new parent's brain changes, not just um, birthing parents, but, but everyone. And not only those who, you know, the one in five or so who experience postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. And I just started thinking then about I I really dove deep into it to understand my own personal experience and then realized like, whoa, there is a a story here that we aren't getting from prenatal education or from the broader cultural conversation around what it means to be a parent. And I got really excited about about telling that story. Uh, Well, to keep it short, it's pretty much exactly the same story for me <laughs> that yeah. once I heard, not about the brain, but about the massive identity shift was what um, really led me to this work, which then led to the understanding of matrescence. Right. So, yes. So what does actually happen to our brain as we become a parent? And in particular, I would love to hear you talk about the timing of this, because Mm. I think one of the things that we assume is that something is switched on immediately, either when we pee on the stick and we begin, (laughs) we realize that we're going to become a mother or at that process of birthing them and meeting them for the first time. There is an assumption that not only is our intuition switched on, but something automatically changes. And what does the science say about that? 
The short answer is that it's a process. It is not something that is innately hardwired in us or that automatically happens with, like you said, the flip of the switch. It is something that um, develops in us over time. And it comes from the brains that we already have with all of our strengths and challenges that we bring to the job. And it comes through experience. And so, you know, the, the parental brain science is relatively young. So there's a lot of questions that we still don't have answered. So many questions. Um, but one of them is like, what is the timeline exactly? Like, how do these changes happen? But there is really good evidence that they, that they occur throughout pregnancy and then long after pregnancy also, which is a really important point. And the way I like to talk about it is that there are two things really that shape the parental brain. There's hormones and, and there's experience. And we often talk about hormones during pregnancy in terms of like the uh, spikes in estrogen and progesterone and oxytocin as labor approaches and prolactin to help us um, uh, to make milk. And, and we talk about how all of these things shape the pregnant body and, and initiate childbirth. We don't often talk about how they also shape the brain. And the way researchers think about it is that it really like prime, these, these prime the brain to then be ready to receive our children who are these incredibly powerful stimuli. And over time, as we take care of them, as we work really hard to read the cues of these tiny, vulnerable, nonverbal babies who are always changing um, and respond to them, that that is a really, essentially a really intense learning process that shapes our brain for the, for the long haul. I loved that when I was reading that with your work is that, you know, that full on intense, you know, overwhelm bombardment of changes in that early stage is actually prep for how we have to do this. I mean, my daughter is now 15 and I'm still yeah. on a daily basis going, oh my God, how do I meet this need? What is this cue? What does this mean? So this is actually priming us for the rest of our life as a parent. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. And that makes sense, right? Because your kids are always changing and you have to change with them. Like if we're going to be effective parents. We have to be we're able to respond to them and they're not static people, you know, they, they, they're growing all the time. And that, that what you're talking about is really like a central tenant, I guess, of, of the parental brain is that it's, it's, it's really, um, created for flexibility. You know, it's, it's what we're doing is learning how, how to adjust and to regulate our own emotions in the, at the same time, um, which is not to say that it's easy. I was about to it's say, just... I'm not sure we get that right though, do we? <laughs> right. Sometimes. I mean, but imagine if like we didn't have this, this adaptation, like it would just be an impossible job. It would be, it would be an, imp an impossible job to take care of a baby whose hour by hour needs are changing, who becomes a toddler and, and a, a young child. And, and then if you have multiple children, you know, they have different developmental needs. They have different personalities. They have different genetic makeups and you have to adjust your parenting in real time to care for both of them. And it's the demands, I think we sometimes we underestimate, except, you know, maybe when we're in it, <laughs> the demands are really high and the brain adapts in a way to help us to cope with that. What about this story that we carry in our culture 
over and over again about mummy brain and this idea mm. that we almost become vague, forgetful. It's a mm. negative thing and you know, many of us even talk about we don't even know if we ever get our brain back after this idea, right. which we now understand, yes, your brain changes forever. But this real cultural story of it is a negative thing, it is a loss to have this happen to your brain. It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating for a, a couple of reasons. One is that it feels true for so many of us. And also, like, we don't want to be limited by that idea. And the way I like to talk about this is that you know, memory loss, especially during pregnancy and for many people in the early postpartum period, it's real. Like it, it, it's, it's real. It's a real experience. And researchers think that it might be linked to changes specifically in the hippocampus, um, which is a key brain region for, for memory um, across pregnancy and in, in the early postpartum period. But that story, that story of us being compromised um, by pregnancy is it's such a tiny piece of a much bigger story that um, you know there are those memory losses, but they're occurring in the context of 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 really powerful adaptation that um, you know researchers who study the parental brain talk about things like heightened cognitive skills so that they, we we get better at reading and responding to other people's social cues we get better potentially at at regulating our own emotions we 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 carry a mental load that is really incredible um and is is often unlike any other that we've ever had previously that suddenly suddenly we have to take on all of the survival needs of of a baby in addition to our own. It's like this dramatic increase in capacity <laughs> and, and the brain does it. And, and that's amazing. And so if it's possible that those, that those changes in memory are related to, or are sort of like a cost to that adaptation, it's also possible that we haven't studied them properly, that we use these standard memory tools to look at me memory in a parenting context and we get it wrong. Um, we see it as a loss when there are some indications that if you create design studies um, that are more specific to parenting, that uh, that new parents perform better um, in that context than than if they weren't than non-parents do. Um, and there's also this set of really fascinating studies that have come out of Australia and out of the UK that look at these huge databases of, of brain imaging. Um, and these are adults in, in thousands of adults in later life, in their 50s, 60s, and older. And they compared the brains of, of parents and non-parents and found that parents' brains are what the researchers called younger looking. And so there's this indication that parenthood might also be like neuroprotective. Um, and we need a lot more research around this. But the idea is that like parenting is a long-term challenge for the brain. <laughs> and just like they tell you to do crossword puzzles or to stay active in retirement, like the challenges of parenthood are sort of like good exercise for the brain because we have to, we, we have to like live up to these intense social challenges that are always changing and that exist for our, over our whole lifetime. And so that, that at least in a broad sense might be good for the brain. Mm, I love that. 
I've heard it described once, and I use this a lot in the work that I do because I think it really reframes this idea of the changes in the brain as well, that the brain goes from me to we. It really does kind of, I don't know if scientifically it's the right way to describe it, but it kind of rewires from a very self-focused to you start Mm -hmm. really looking at, as you said, social constructs, you look at what's around, you consider the future differently. Does the science back that as well? Absolutely. So there's one of the threads that I really love in in the science. So, um, you know, we we have um, all of these brains, these these networks in our brain that are that that like read our our cues, our own body's cues that that um, let me just take a step back. So one of the one of like the points of the brain, one of like the main functions of the brain is predictive modeling to figure out like how much energy do we need and what's coming up and how are we going to distribute that energy to do to do what we need to in our day to keep the body going and also to to do the, whatever tasks we have on deck. And um, so there are these systems in the brain that are are reading what's happening around us and also reading our bodies and and reading our emotional cues to to make those models to help us to figure out how to meet our own needs. And there's a a sense in the parental brain research that those same systems are essentially extended to now include our babies once we become parents, that we are also reading the, the emotional messages and the social cues and and the bodily needs of our child and figuring out how to create the predictive models, you know, how how to meet those needs and our own at the same time. And so there is this sense, I mean, Winnie Orchard, who is a researcher that I talked to for the book, talked, talked about this specifically, this like sort of extension of self um, through the neural networks. And so there is, I think there is, that does happen in kind of a tangible way. The other thing that happens that is that there are some small studies, we need a lot more work on this, but there are some small studies that, that have found how we relate to other adults um, also changes. So the way our, um, our brains respond in kind of in tandem to our partners as we're viewing our child is distinct in parents. And also the way the brain responds when viewing another healthy interaction between a parent and, a, and their child, um, kind of reflecting that caregiving back in our own brains as if we were caring for our own child. It's like a, diff, a distinct connection, like a re, a, a, at a very like fundamental neural level, like a recognition of caregiving. Um, that I think is, I wish there was more science about it because I think it's fascinating. And I feel like there's like sort of a message for the world in there about like how we take care of one another and what it should mean. Um, And I hope it's coming. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? Because it's so frustrating, isn't it? How little we know about something that actually without this act of us becoming parents, the world would die out. Like this is actually fundamental yeah. for our survival. And I remember when I first started studying matrescence with Dr. Orly Athen and, and looking yeah. really deeply into all of this, it's like, why don't we have whole departments dedicated yes. to understanding this? And without going down the full patriarchal political rant, which yeah, you know, right. I'm sure you and I could do really easily, what do you feel when you realize that there's so little we know about this and in tandem to that, is it changing? 
are we starting to spend more time, research and energy looking into the experience of parenting? I do think it's changing. I I think, you know, conversations like this one is evidence of that. And and I've been doing a lot of these since the the book came out. I think people are really hungry for this information because it helps them to see themselves um, differently or at least, you know, more clearly. Um, um, I, but I I don't think it's changing quickly enough to to be (laughs) honest. Like I, I just this morning, um, email. There's a you know a major um, science journal that's putting on a series about brain plasticity, and they they have an event on on the on babies and teenagers and then seniors and in, in later life. And I sort of emailed them and said, Hey, I love you would feature something about about the parental brain, and and here's my book, and 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 because there is the I we just omit it, we just omit all of it and and um it's such a huge part of our life you know for for most of us do become parents and and this is a powerful um new parenthood is such a really i talk about it as a dramatic stage of development for the for the brain that not only shapes us in the postpartum time frame but over the whole rest of our lives our physical and our mental health and so why aren't we talking about it more um explore some of those reasons in in the book including you know that we don't have enough research that that includes women in general or that includes reproductive history as as a factor of of development um and then I think there are also not to go on the rant, but you know there are also social and political forces, including that this is motherhood in particular is thought of as just a biologically essential piece of our identity that we're already made to do this. And so looking at it through a framework of development is kind of countercultural, and it's going to take pushing for us to to get there. And we will push. We will yeah. push. <laughs> Let's talk about then what happens to the non-birthing parent. Again, mm-hmm. questions I get a lot. I have had some phenomenal women do my uh, mummerizing coaching training who are adoptive mothers mm-hmm. and foster mothers and foster parents and really wanting to have this conversation around how yeah. becoming a parent looks different and the changes and the experience can be very similar. Um, what did you find in terms of um, the either the adoptive or foster parents or mm. the fathers, the non-birthing parents? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so the caveat, of course, is that we have very little research that's not on gestational mothers specifically. But what we do have is really compelling and tells us that the same same fundamental truth holds for for other parents, which is that the parental brain is shaped by hormones and experience and um, you know, in, in fathers, we know that there are hormonal changes that take place as they approach parenthood and, and, and in those early days and weeks, um, you know, we, there is the research is a little bit complicated, but the, there's a sense that, that testosterone dro- drops in men as, as they approach parenthood, they experience spikes in oxytocin as they interact with their children, just like mothers do. And they have experienced changes in their prolactin system, which we generally think of as like a milk making hormone, but it's also involved. It's actually a bonding related social 
bonding related hormone. And so it's sort of, it's involved in, in their bonding process. And, um, what we, uh, there's, there could, you know, it's, it's growing, but slowly body of evidence and fathers that show that there are significant changes in their brains with experience specifically that, that they, that what, what researchers think is that they experience this priming from hormones and then it readies them to be, to be ready essentially to care for, for their babies. And that over time, as they engage in that caregiving, their, their brain changes in similar ways, which is um, for primary caregiving fathers, they have similar amygdala activation as uh, primary caregiving mothers. And um, this is from a study that came out of Israel a, a few years ago. Um, that looked at gay fathers and and straight parents, and when they looked at at the fathers across across the study, they found that the more a father was engaged in direct care, like directly taking responsibility for the care needs of their babies, the the stronger the activation and and or activity and connectivity between the amygdala and a key brain region involved in social cognition was. And we have a new study that's just come out that's that's shown that fathers have significant structural changes also across pregnancy in the early postpartum period. Um, there'll be more coming from those researchers as they follow those fathers into fatherhood. Um, and so there's a lot, <laughs> there's, there's um, we can sort of extrapolate to some degree from that to, to think about other parents, adoptive parents and foster parents. There are a few small studies looking at each group. Um, uh, and generally what, what we see um, is hormonal changes and brain activity changes that kind of accumulate over time that the more experience a person has in direct caregiving, the more significant their changes are. And all of that kind of taken together has led researchers to, to characterize what they call a global parental caregiving network, this system of brain regions that that change, again, with hormones and with time. Mm. I remember hearing once when I was looking at this that, and it makes sense when I hear what you've just said, that the more the non-birthing parent can be there in those early weeks and months, the more changes in their brain that mimic what happens with the birthing parent. And it really leads to that argument of, if we can change the maternity leave, the paternity leave yeah. policy, if we can have the non-birthing parent at home as much as possible for that exper experiential interaction, that real physical experience, as, to, as opposed to the olden days where, you know, the baby's born and the dad goes back to work. Obviously, right. there's much less change in the brain if that's what happens. And if we can right. change that, then we have so many benefits, not only for the help for the new mum, <laughs> yeah. but he or the non-birthing parent mm -hmm. experiences so much as well in that first period. Right. Yes. And it, it, I, the brain science really adds to this. I, I should also note that like the sense that the, these brain changes accumulate over time with an experience. We also know this from mothers too, right? So it, it, we, we have evidence there as well, but you're absolutely right that that it, it really makes an argument for giving all parents access to their child, time with their child. And the truth is, the brain findings 
strengthen that argument, but we don't actually need them <laughs> to, to make that argument, right? Like at a very, very fundamental level, um, what this science is, is showing us is that parenting is a learned skill and and it is a, a distinct kind of biological process that happens in this time of life that that you know is is shaped by hormonal changes and the real power of babies themselves but it is that that that's what's happening we're learning and you need time to learn you need you need time with your baby to learn it's not automatic for mothers it's not a, automatic for any other parent and and they need time to learn how to do it and it's where it's one of the areas that i feel most hopeful that that more fathers are engaged with their children right now. And I think not only are they learning these skills of caregiving, but they're also learning what it feels like to be captured by their babies in the, in, in the way that, that so many mothers are, are familiar with. And, and I think that that teaches them, you know, the, the benefits of caregiving and also the real costs that come with it and, and what you have to do to get there. And I hope that they'll kind of take that, that feeling into their, you know, positions of power as policymakers and business leaders and whoever they are and use it to, to write better policies for everyone. What a beautiful way to look at it, that yes, the more they can be involved, the more the brain changes for that from me to we, the more mm -hmm. they're aware of the consequences of policies. And then hopefully we get better policies in place. One of the passions of mine from this work is to really change the way parents are seen and supported in the workplace mm. when they return from parental leave, whatever that is. Instead of seeing yeah. them as only now half available or, um, you know, unable to perform like they used to or any of those um, assumptions, to instead yeah. start seeing them now as having extra superpowers and to yeah. really support them in a different way, both um, mothers and fathers. Um, what would you like workplaces to know about the new parent brain when they walk back in from however long they're able to have off? What would workplaces benefit from understanding what this new brain is now capable of? Um. So I would want I would want workplaces to know that um, <laughs> that that there that this is a growth in capacity that like that w the parental brain adapts to help us step into this role. But um, I always like bristle just a little bit when we talk about mothers as as superheroes because. I don't think that we need, to, we should, I know you know this, like that we, that we should expect them to behave like superheroes, that like we don't have to prove our worth by, by um, doing it all. <laughs> and, yes. um, but I think that there is value in having mothers and fathers and parents at the table. And so the, the, I, I think it's like a fundamental um, raising the standard from thinking of parents as compromised to thinking of them as as good as ever, right? That they were really capable before they were parents and they are really capable now because they have this kind of increased capacity. And there's this other side of it too of, well, and how do we kind of preserve their ability 
by not making it even harder for them. <laughs> so, so how do we how do we recognize their value not only for what they've always been able to bring, but also now for this caregiving identity that they bring to the workplace. Their this ability to see the world a little bit differently, to think through problems a little bit differently because of that like kind of we mode <laughs> that you you talked about and um and and really make sure that we we see the value in that and we support it with the policies um, that, you know, that, that we create. So it's, it's an, it's, I feel like it's a little bit of a threading of the needle, right? Like you, you like we have, we, we have, we have an, a, a, um, a, a greater capacity than we, than we did. And, and parents may need different supports than they, than they did before at the same time. Yes. And what I've taken from our conversation also is that this will take time for us to understand yeah. how to balance this, especially in parts of the world where maternity leave is eight weeks, six weeks. Yeah. You know, when this woman walks back into the workplace, her brain is only just starting to catch up, actually probably mm. not even yet. Mm. And so can we not only see that there are some benefits here, I love the way you talk about how, you know, her capacity is what it used to be plus, but also mm -hmm. let's give this time. You know, one of mm -hmm. the frustrations we have is that you need to work as if you're not a parent and parent right. as if you don't work. And <laughs> right. so there needs to be in the workplace as well this understanding that, she, that we're just trying to figure out how this all fits together here. Mm -hmm. And the brain will catch up, the systems, you know, mm -hmm. the internal system is there, we'll get mm -hmm. there. But instead of just assuming she's back, let's just do what we have always done, there's your desk, yeah. there's your login, off you go, we need yeah. a process of, of almost re-onboarding, new conversations, yeah. checking in, understanding that this is a process that takes time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And we also need like a cultural shift and valuing caregiving so that when she does come back, and she, even as she settles in, that we can like recognize that that like her worldview is a little different and it's important and, and really valuable. Exactly. Oh, I love it. It's so exciting that these conversations are beginning. Thank you for being the one yeah. who dives into medical journals and understands oh. them, first of all, and then turns them well, into something you. that is actually so readable. The way that you've pulled this together, it doesn't feel like a science book. It doesn't feel, mm -hmm. in the best possible way, I mean. Yeah. yeah. It is so <laughs> accessible and um, I just... I wonder what our world would be like if we understood these types of things in a really different way. Well, thank you for saying all of that. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm so glad it, it resonated with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the work that you're, you're doing to carry this conversation forward. Yes, let's do it. Let's get this conversation out there. Thank you so much. And um, all the details of reading the book and your work will be in the show notes. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you, Amy. Like I said, Chelsea Connerboy's book, Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood, is actually a fascinating and easy read. If this conversation excites you like it does me, then please grab a copy and in fact, share it around because these are the things that we need to change in our culture, in our workplaces, and like Chelsea said, 
in our policies, if we can begin to realize that not only have we not understood this enough, but also when we begin to understand it, the massive benefits to our whole entire society of becoming a parent and supporting parents differently, then like I say all the time, I think we'll have a different world. Please let me know what you took out of this interview and jump online on social media and let Chelsea know as well. Thank you for being here and a part of these conversations that will, I'm sure, change the way the world sees parents of all kinds around the world. Until next week, Satnam. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.